0: Hey Kyle, Tyler Fox here. I am sitting in a tent in Milford Sound on the South Island of New Zealand, listening to the tiny waves lap on the shore and have the most incredible view out the door of my tent at thousand foot pinnacles extending into the sky. And just listen to Fergal Smith, and super inspiring about farming, and I wanted to thank you for all your hard work and for getting some absolutely amazing guests. Cheers. Aw, ah, gee. Thanks, Tyler. T-Fox sold me my first ever Mavericks gun. It was a 9.2 Travis Reynolds, and I still own it to this day. The thing is magic, and we have spent many mornings cramming into uh the car that I had when when we first started going up there I had a diesel Volkswagen Golf two door with a tow hitch on it and we would tow our jet ski up the coast uh which was significantly more dangerous than the actual act of surfing Mavericks so I'm happy uh Happy! I don't have that car anymore. But if any of you have a message that you want played at the beginning of my show, you can record it using voice memos on your phone, and you can email it to me. Head over to my website, Kyle.Surf. You can let me who, let me know who you are, where you're listening from, something you're working on or excited about these days, and I would love to hear from you and play it. Thank you so much to Cameron for donating on the podcast this week. Uh, Seriously, it means a huge amount. Even just a few bucks a month does add up, and it allows me to prioritize this show and drive all over California and get these great guests for you. The way you can think about it is if you're going to listen to this podcast even just once a month, you're going to be spending an hour or two with me. Um, And if you were to spend that time in a coffee shop... You would probably be spending five, 10, maybe 15 bucks. Um, So, why not throw that money this way? If you don't have cash, um, absolutely no worries. Just keep listening, share it with friends. I don't advertise. So, uh, it's people like you who get the word out and just keep enjoying it. This episode was fantastic. Um, this podcast is with hugo tagholm he is the director of surfers against sewage they're an organization that started in 1990 they take on plastic pollution climate change and sewage Um, it was a really good one so we're just gonna get it going right now Um, but once again if you want to get in touch with me head over to my website kyle.surf that's where you can email me donate. Check out any and all of my work and peruse freely. So, hope you enjoy this conversation with Hugo Tagholm. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave. And you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen,
1: and that being my job.
0: Hey. Hey. Standing at a right. desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Right. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs
1: up. Welcome to the- Show.
0: <laughs> Straight back and energized from the glory of Big Sur. Yeah, beautiful,
2: beautiful Big Sur. Um, and what a what a difference in temperature and and climate in just uh, an hour's drive or an hour and a bit's drive, amazing! But uh, yeah, it's a very special place, very very special. Thousand year old trees, um, wildlife everywhere in abundance, um, and it really puts you in your place. I had a bit of a sleepless night last night. I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, actually, you know, not just my sleep, but my sort of life time is a blip compared to these trees and so just get back to sleep don't worry it's all good
0: (laughs) yeah i think that nature forces us to reflect on the the temporal nature of life because we see plants grow we see them die we see seasons change we we see life taking place at a different tempo than we're normally used to and it forces that kind of reflection in a really healthy way Absolutely, and and Big Sur is 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 no
2: doubt one of the, the the jewels in the crown of of what I've seen in my in my short existence on Earth. Um, I've been blown away by by this this part of California, um, Santa Cruz, Big Sur, the waves, the wildlife, um, the nature, and and most of all the 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 sort of the the juxtaposition of 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 the big nature right next to the most developed nation on earth and how they, there is a, a, a harmony here between those two things. Um, and of course, we've come off the back of the Global Wave Conference where we talked a lot about that and the success story of this part of the world in terms of conservation efforts and, and legislation. But it, it shines very,
0: very brightly. Um, from what I've seen around the world, yeah, there were a few people who came to Santa Cruz, you know, back in the '60s, '70s, '80s, and they they made a few um, a few rules that had, for example, this is a, a nuclear-free zone. This is a, a drill-free zone. You'll notice in Santa Cruz there aren't any billboards around. That was a law that was passed, and it really um, it impacts. It impacted future generations and our um ability to enjoy our surroundings I, uh,
2: I think that that comes across loud and clear from from what i've seen and the, the attitude people have um towards nature um the interactions people are having on a daily basis with with nature here and that that control of 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 the surroundings it's so important in this in this age of overload um most of all digital but to to put that back into the physical surroundings the place where we actually exist not virtually exist is is the most important thing Um, we talk you know more and more in this world about nature deficit disorder and all of these things and and we see it It's, it's bad for for people not to be connected with their surroundings so every bridge we can build every real sort of synapse in terms of experiences that we can have is something that is deeply nourishing and i find often in this this world and as a you know professional as a you know in my job i have to be online an awful lot and it's not always nourishing you come out in a in a scrambled state quite often maybe with a lot of information maybe with new information but quite often feeling that overload and it's 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 the 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 real world connections and the, the real world stuff we do that really nourishes our our soul, I would go as far as saying, it sounds corny, but, but it, it feels that way. Um, and if it feels right, maybe it is right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do at the end of every year is not to create um, a, a New Year's resolution list, but a past year's reflections list. And I write down a few highlights of my past year. And so often they all took place outside. Like, oh, that trip that I took, you know, like one of, for example, uh, last year I went down to Big Sur with some friends and we took a stand up paddle boarding trip from um, Andrew Malera 10 miles down the coast and then camped on a beach that night and uh, underneath a waterfall, we, we brought dry bags with tents and sleeping bags, fished along the way, and then the following day, we packed up and we, we hitched a ride out back to our car up north, and I wrote that down like, man, that was fucking fun. It, it, it is absolutely that, and I, I, I see that
2: with, with my own experiences and with my family, and we live in Cornwall, a beautiful, beautiful part of the... Um, the uk and one that's got a lot of similarities with with this part of california actually you know lots of great nature lots of sort of big big landscapes beautiful and diverse coastline very rocky in places big beach breaks um reef breaks um cliffs quite dramatic landscapes um an awesome part of the uk and, and lots of our experiences are the same and we take we take our kid darwin out um kayaking fishing off the back of the the kayak and, and and making fires on the beach and and cooking the fish and and camping out and and absolutely you you find that and i, I think that the, the sort of that 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 sort of um prism of looking at it through your your kids eyes and i've got the good fortune of having that at the moment um really brings it to the fore i see that often there's a bit of resistance with darwin when he wants to when we want to go out and at the, at the beginning he's like i don't want to go i don't want to go on the walk i don't want to do this but once he's out it just just hits him like a wave of, of enjoyment and excitement, and actually sort of almost abandoning his own sort of confines and, and really really breathing in that that experience. And so, uh, same for us, um, you know, all of the most formative things are really done outside in the real world. They're not they're not in front of a screen.
0: yeah, and it's the and also a lot of the enjoyment is a result of pushing through a little bit of difficulty. There's a guy named Josh Waitzkin who wrote a book called The Art of Learning. There was a movie that was made about him called Searching for Bobby Fischer. He's a chess champion, chess prodigy, and, and very um, thoughtful about how to learn best. And he has a kid and he tells this story on a podcast about how he uh, will take cold showers and he's a big fan of cold uh, exposure and he'll take cold showers with his kid, but he makes sure to orient cold as a positive to his child. So it's like, oh yeah, it, it feels so good, doesn't it? The cold weather, the cold water. And if we can orient ourselves and our children to difficult experiences and moving through difficult experiences within nature specifically, it can, it can be a positive for them
2: absolutely i'm not quite sure i can sell the cold in in such a big way to darwin yet (laughs) but but um but yeah he um i think uh, i think just learning from from you know adversity you know we we just talked before we started about you know learning from sort of mistakes and learning from adversity there where you hone skills there where you make new connections in your mind of how to survive and how to thrive actually um so
0: absolutely a a great thing so why um how did Surfers Against Sewage start? Surfers
2: Against Sewage started yeah. back in the 19, uh, early 1990s, um, in 1990 itself, actually, um, because there was a chronic chronic sewage pollution problem in the UK. Um, it was uh, water companies who were pumping out raw, untreated sewage, um, often a, a mile or two offshore, sometimes closer, um, and that was considered treatment, putting it out, far enough, far enough for people not to see it actually falling out of the pipes. But the winds, particularly the prevailing winds in the southwest of England, where the surface were blowing that, you know, back on shore. And surfers were sick of getting sick of, of the sewage pollution. They were, you know, getting the, the normal things, not a lot of maybe chronic illness, but uh, the the eyes, the ears, the nose, the, 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 the throat, all of those sorts of things. And they were getting sick. And, and so surfers were the, the, the sort of the front people, the community that said this isn't good enough. Um, simultaneously, there were huge bits of sweeping environment legislation that came in from Europe Um, you know there were bureaucrats working tirelessly in in Europe to put together this new wave of of legislation that was protecting not just the ocean environment but but lots of different environments and lots of different species and water quality was one of the things they focused on so they brought in legislation in 91 that forced water companies to clean up their act so they had to buy well over the next sort of 10 to 15 years put in full sewage treatment for all of the effluent that they put out there, so they um, they put a huge round of investment in place, and they've we, we've we've had an amazing journey on that. So we've gone from what would have been 27% of our beaches passing the minimum water quality standard in Europe to now 98.5% of our beaches. So um, a, a, a phenomenal success story, and um, one that was of course contained. We had a we had a the bad guys, the water companies. Um, we had their pipes, and we had the good guys of surface against each other environmental organizations and Then the bureaucrats he said right we 've got we 've got to put some legislation in place that that forces them to change and that legislation was clearly applied to their pipes, their infrastructure. It was a very distinct piece of work, and actually that has has shone through. There's still problems with water quality. There are still ways it can bypass those systems, but overall the water quality picture is much, much better today, which is a success story, and one we want to replicate in other areas, MPAs, plastic pollution, of course, and and other things that are affecting the, the, the oceans around the world, not just
0: in the UK. So on a good day, I will take two or three shits I'm a big fan of pooping. I recently got a squatty potty in my uh, in my bathroom. It's wonderful. It's the greatest purchase I've made for under $100 in quite some time. So pooping is a big influence in my life, yet I have rarely thought what happens to my poop once I flush it down the toilet. And what you're talking about is the treatment that happens between the time that I flush that poop down the toilet and when it reaches the ocean. So what happens, and what what does treatment really look like? Is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Well, I think that the, the, your your pooping—that's a
2: high pooping cadence, two or three times a day. Yeah. impressive, impressive stats. Got a got a lot of fiber in that diet. It's a good diet, good yeah. diet. Um, it will be taken to the, the the sewage treatment plant, where the solids would be would be settled out of the the effluent and the, the liquids would be treated. And, and the really important part of the treatment process before you effectively have almost potable water is either the microfiltration or the UV sewage um, fil- uh, treatment, which would, would kill all of the harmful pathogens um, or, or pretty much all of them 99.9% of the harmful pathogens in that in that effluent and so it's good to then be put back into the sea um, to be put back into our rivers because it's basically just water again and so that's that's the responsibility in the UK and in many developed countries of the water companies Um, we have privatized water companies and there's problems with that in its in its own way but they they've made that investment um, and that's why our waters are now much cleaner so it's the whole process of getting getting out the solids, and now there's a there's a convergence of not just the sewage issue, but the plastic pollution issue, because some of those solids now are getting contaminated with microplastics and parts of you know plastic products we have in our environment and society that make their way into the sewage treatment, and so there's a question of how that then gets put back onto f- farmland and our you know agricultural fields, but um, overall um, you know we've got a, a much better water quality, but one that can still be bypassed. So just Just as you've got here in California after a big rainstorm you're going to get the the flushing of all of your uh, systems uh, your your water systems Um, and the same in the UK when we have heavy rainfall which is more frequent than this part of the world. The the sewage treatment um, works can actually be bypassed and so those um, that normally treated effluent can bypass the system and make its way into the ocean again. So we're campaigning, we have done for a long time for much more real time water quality information. So we've got telemetry it's all goes into the sort of very sort of boring lexicon but the telemetry on the end of of thousands of sewer pipes which means we can tell you as a surfer or a swimmer or a sailor when there's a sewage spill in real time so at your favourite beach whether it's Steamer Lane or or wherever as an example here we could tell you if there's a sewage impact there which is a a good step forward of course doesn't stop the problem but it makes you enables you to make an informed decision about when you use the ocean and to protect yourself from potentially harm for water quality issues. So when it,
0: uh, heavy rains are when water quality is the worst. Um, and explain that to me a little bit more, like how, it, how heavy rains will allow affluent to bypass by the treatment. You, you've effectively, you, you've got a certain capacity
2: in any sewage treatment plant. So they build it for however many millions of, of, of cubic liters of, of sewage effluent to be able to be treated effectively. When there's a big rainstorm um, and Um, the the sewage treatment works basically won't be able to cope with what is a combined system. So in the UK, we have a combined uh, runoff, so the surface water from our towns, cities and streets and what comes out of our houses and other buildings and so that will combine together so there'll be a huge volume of water that will make its way towards the sewage treatment works and when that happens there's a bypass valve there's effectively an overflow plug that says look we can't deal with all of this and it will just overtip, and it will go straight out into a combined sewer overflow which will discharge into a river a stream maybe directly into the coastline Places like the River Thames are chronically affected at the moment. There's lots of rivers around the UK, not just in Cornwall, that are affected. Um, in in the Thames, a great example of how severe the problem is, is there's so much sewage pollution that currently goes in that they're building a, a mega sewer at the moment called... Um, it's called the Thames Tideway Project, and that's a, a £10 billion project to, to alleviate the, the pressures of sewage pollution on the Thames. So it can be a really big problem in parts, particularly where you've got a big population, so that rainfall, an urban population, um, and then a big river being affected like that. But it's not just sewage that affects our water quality when it rains, and this is the same worldwide. The rain will flush lots of stuff off the land off our streets so oils and and other other microplastics and things farm um sort of diffuse pollution from livestock and agriculture so pesticides so the whole thing creates a sort of toxic soup of of not just pathogens but chemicals and plastics and all sorts of things that can make its way into the ocean um and that's that's a big issue because It's not just like the pipes that the water companies own, which we can sort of control. It's coming from everywhere and everything. And we're also talking about an environment um, that is never sterile anyway. And no one wants the sea to be sterile. You could get sick any given day in the sea. There's stuff in there that could make you sick. And as surfers, we already take risk. We take risk as we surf with a heavy, sharp, board we surf in big waves well you do i don't i surf in very risk-free waves generally
0: (laughs) Um, ironically though that's where you always get injured isn't it (laughs) yeah on the two-foot day when you take out a soft top absolutely so um (laughs) so yeah cook slams so yeah yeah i
2: may well feature at some stage (laughs) 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 but a goal but um but you know we 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 we, we have an inherent amount of risk in the sport we do and i think there's lots of surfers who would go look it's rained you know, there may be pollution problems, but the waves are pumping, and I'm going to go, and I, I, I'm going to take on that risk. And that's that's fine. I think the, the key is that we have the information, as much information as possible, that we have transparency from water companies when sewage goes into the sea. And actually, we build up a data set that says not only this is useful for you to protect yourselves, but more importantly, if it becomes a, a huge data set that the water companies then need to act again. And this always goes back to the old sort of mantra of the environment's never saved. It's always in the process of being saved. It's like, look, this is a continuous journey. We never, there's never a finite win to this. This is a continual adaptation to what the current environmental problem is. And this is, this is where SAS is well-placed. This is where Surfrider and Save the Waves and other great organizations are well-placed use the network, use the experience to keep evolving with the journey of what we need to do. And that's why we've moved on from being that single issue pressure group to this diverse marine conservation organization working on lots of different things. So it's about a, a sort of a journey about responding to those externalities. What's happening? What do we see? What does the canary in the coal mine of, of, of you know, the surfer see? And how do we create a campaign that helps respond to
0: that? Yeah, and gaining more information because the more information you have, the more power you have to react to the issues at hand.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that that you that we were talking about before, being out here in your yard in the sunshine, surfboards around us, having a, a, a sort of a, a loose chat, um, is a really great, authentic thing to do. And I think that's that's one of the things that SAS and other organisations like Save the Waves and Surf Rider have is a really authentic. Um, constituency a really authentic membership and a really authentic um, connection with the coastline and that's really important in what we do we can't rival the really really big environmental and conservation orgs out there the conservation internationals and the the WWFs and the Green pieces. they're more resourced in other ways but they may not always be as authentic and directly connected with the environment that they serve to protect. And we are, and I think that comes through certainly for Surfers Against Sewage. It's why a small group of people um, in based in Cornwall can run a national organization that's influencing government and influencing industry and getting changes made that are way beyond the power that my team has. We have 15 people, we have 150 chapters, we represent 50,000 volunteers, but, but we're a tiny, tiny group of people with a tiny budget creating relatively big change and I think that's because of the authentic voice that we have not not transmitted through a PR company based far away from the sea not transmitted by someone else but transmitted by us people who have seen the ocean almost every day maybe use the ocean certainly every week people who are really passionate about
0: that environment and that counts for a lot. What have been some of the big wins that you're most proud of at Servers Against Sewage? Well I'm always proud
2: of, of representing or working and empowering so many people in terms of the volunteering footprint. So we work with about 50,000 people a year around the UK coastline and further afield um, as we internationalise. Um, and being able to give them an opportunity to, to work with us and connect and grow that movement has been a, a proud moment for me. I took over in 2008. Um, and we mobilized then maybe 500 people a year. And this year it will be 50,000 people. So it's a big, a big gear shift. And I'm proud to, to represent those people and work with those people. Um, they're
0: my inspiration. Um, And what do volunteers do? Let's say I wanted to volunteer with with SAS. What does that really look like? Well, of course, they'll do things like beach cleans.
2: So that's great. You know, every piece of trash they're taking off the beach is a victory. Um, Maybe I should describe it more as plastic pollution. I'm not sure it's just a littering or trash issue. This is about the system's failure of our society to let so much plastic into the environment. They will do, um, of course, school talks and things like that. They will work on different campaigns locally, whether it's trying protect a surf spot or talking about a local water quality issue that will work with us around that and campaign locally at the moment we're also gearing up that that group of people to work on upstream solutions to plastic pollution so we started plastic-free communities last year we've got hundreds of community leaders already leading their community on a five-step plan to connect local government with local businesses with local schools with local people and put the engine in place to, to to really reduce the plast- single-use plastic footprint of that community and the combined reach of the communities we already have in the UK is over 19 million people so so we've got a powerful small group of people influencing big change already on the upstream solutions to plastic pollution so lots of different things, they'll come to Parliament with us, we go to Parliament a lot we love to take our volunteers there, we love to take school children, we reach to, to Parliament with us um, because that influences politicians when they hear the true story from the
0: horse's mouth as it were they can't argue their way around that do you have any stories of of influencing politicians it's really fascinating to me because even if you don't care about politics politics cares about you and for a lot of people the big issues the ones that really matter can seem boring and kind of clunky but if you get past that first layer um, it's where a lot of fascinating change happens. And I was listening to a podcast that I highly recommend called More Perfect. Have you heard of this? I haven't heard it yet. Oh right. my God, it's amazing. It's, it's by Radiolab and it's stories of um, in our judicial system that have shaped our country. So like one of the episodes is on um, the death penalty and how the death penalty came to be and where it is now. And from a storytelling perspective, it's so fascinating to me. Um, so I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you interact with par- Parliament specifically, and and how those how those stories play out. Well, uh, uh, just to reflect
2: on a couple of those sort of points, um, I think as a person, if you if you care about anything, you are effectively political, um, and people often forget that. And politics, but, you know, until recently, I think was made into this fairly boring thing politics politics people in washington people in london you know people who don't really understand anything you know how do we you know why why would we want to or how do we connect with them you know how do we influence them do we even need to and a lot of people were so desensitized by politics that they they felt they felt disengaged disenfranchised you know and probably left politics to one side in terms of their own voice for me, what's been the silver lining of this this, in some ways, in my opinion, catastrophic shift in politics um, with Brexit in the UK, with the, the current president of the US, um, is actually, for me, it's made people realize that their voice does count and that collectively we can push for things that seem unattainable um so it's reinvigorated the grassroots it's reinvigorated that spirit of people going actually we can we can make a difference let's unite let's get more sophisticated let's connect let's build the movement to create what we want to see in society so the counterweight to to these swings to the right the far right even um, across not just the UK and 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 the states, um, but a lot across a lot of you know Western developed countries, is that now the the other side is starting to connect and mobilise to say we need to we need to do more. So, for me, politics is is really important. It's been at the heart of SAS since the very beginning. The sort of sandy footprints of surfers in Parliament running running around with surfboards and gas masks and wetsuits in places that you wouldn't normally have them it's part of our heritage and back in 2013 we we launched a a petition called the protect our waves petition uh, basically calling for better protection of surf spots from development from big water quality issues and plastic pollution and we at the time it was before this 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 current phase of petitions being everywhere it was quite a quite a fresh thing then. And we got over 50,000 people to sign it, which was a big number then. It's not so much of a big number now. Um, And we took that petition to Downing Street. And it, it helped us form what's called an all party parliamentary group, which has a membership now of 30 or 40 MPs, members of parliament. And they have to sit down with me and a number of my team and other experts and people we bring in to talk about the issues that we care about affecting surf spots and affecting beaches around the u k water quality plastic pollution is big on it now, and so it often makes me chuckle when i 'm making a sort of speech in Parliament when I get a a Christmas card from a politician on the on the group um, that that we 've got this this amazing vehicle to to raise the profile of the issues that we care about and create new legislation hopefully which is the ultimate goal, which i'll talk about in a moment but but we've got politicians who are very interested and i think that just like guinness using surfing to sell more guinness um we're using surfing to 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 build more environment that's what we're trying to do we're we're using it sure it's uh it's it can be a sort of a marketing tool for good but that's exactly why it's part of part of us. We're surfers. We love the ocean. We love the stuff around us. And if it helps us leverage a bigger impact, then 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 brilliant. And that's why I think we can. I think weirdly, and you'll have to come to one, Carl. We we do these sort of events in Parliament that are pretty exciting, and we've got these politicians there going, "Amazing! How do you sort of create such a dynamic in in Westminster?" And actually, it's because we create a mix of people, artists, athletes environmentalists, activists, politicians, sure, the media, business. And we create this melting pot of positivity for the ocean, of ocean optimism. And that I think is the the special source <laughs> in in what we do and what, what Chad and Nick do at Surfrider and Save the Waves. And we have something different and we've got to keep that, keep that character. We don't want to become one of the, the big giant charities disconnected we don't want to become one of the 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 sort of desk bound observers of the ocean we want to be in the ocean and we want to be talking about what we see and building the connections around us to create the change that we need to protect that experience
0: it's it always fascinates me that something like an environmental issue keeping our oceans clean has become a partisan issue the earlier, you said you know the, there's there's the response to the far right because everyone wants clean air and everyone's everyone wants clean water. It, ultimately, it shouldn't be a controversial issue, but somehow it's become uh, it's become politicized. How do you speak to someone who does care about the environment? Probably cares about hunting, cares about spearfishing, surfing but is averse to big government and regulation it's a it's a good question um there's a
2: there's a lot of money in the background of 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 that that argument because i don't think you know on its face level on on its base level fundamentally no one's going to say they want to see any wilderness killed or exploited, you know, for you know, for the the wrong reasons. Um, no one's going to say they want to see the death and destruction of the wildlife around us. Everyone's going to say they like the beach as it is, and they want to keep the beach as it is. I, I, I agree with that. I think where it becomes more complicated is where politicians and businesses sort of converge for the justification of what needs to happen, whether it's to exploit or what they want to happen, not what needs to happen. So whether it's the exploitation of a pristine environment, whether it's um, whether it's the building of new oil wells in our ocean, um, and often the the justification follows the money and the money can build the right justification for anything and bring lots of people along with it particularly in a time when people are time poor so they can hear the sound bites we talked about earlier and they can believe that it's fine to to build more oil wells or exploit the arctic in a in a new in a new frontier of resource extraction but actually the the truth of that is is probably very different. Um, I agree it shouldn't be a partisan issue and people um, on the left and right can love and do love the environment equally so. I think, I think it comes to a point when, when there's a, 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 an, a... I'm not going to necessarily say it's the left or the right but there comes a point when there is a, a party of, of big business in any country and big business is what keeps the economic model that we currently have alive. It tends to people keep people in their houses and their jobs, and so we're 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 in a funny age when people like their their lifestyle they like what they can get they you know like um, the trappings of this modern life but we 're probably at a turning point whether we 've hit it whether it 's coming, whether it 's today whether it 's this second right now of what what can we have and what truly is sustainable um so i think that the politics and the business mix is a is a is a complicated one and i'm not i'm not probably as well versed as you kyle on on it but um but certainly it's 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 a complication
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i um yeah campaign finance reform is an issue that i'm very passionate about there's a guy named lawrence lessig who's uh um a professor at Harvard who gives a great TED talk on campaign finance reform and how getting business out of government is the first issue. It's not the most important issue. It's just the first issue that all other issues um, are affected by. Um, and it's, it is, it's interesting for me, someone who works in media, to see how, framing and how often... Um, exploitation of our natural resources is framed through jobs and when you can get desperate people who do need jobs people who have been hurting um on board with that message it's very effective um at getting people to to exploit beauty and our natural world uh for short-term gain absolutely
2: and i think yeah, you know, I think that therein lies one of the the strategies of the environmental movement now, which is is how do we create jobs out of protecting nature, whether right. it's protecting forests or the ocean, or you know what we see here of you know the how how protecting the whales or protecting um, certain parts of of the Californian um, you know uh, natural. Uh, treasure trove big sir and a great example can actually create the economy you need to to keep it thriving
0: yeah and one thing i love about what save the waves and nick strong's fetish um are doing around the um the what's the campaign called where they show the economic value of waves in a region surfonomics yeah because you know, now you're talking my language, you know, the, the, the politicians can understand what tourism dollars mean. And I think that surfers many times are underrepresented in government. And when, as you said, when you go to the footsteps with your sandy feet of of someone in parliament and say, hey, we got a big group here that can resonate when organized. Um, but most politicians don't surf and they don't have an understanding of just how many people there are who care about the ocean and these natural spaces.
2: Uh, absolutely, I think uh, an even less politician surf in the UK than than than, than here. Um, I think that you've got a, a higher hit rate with that. But yeah, I think you know, monet, you know, put, putting a, an economic value, and we did it. We did a, a, an economic report on the value of of surfing waves in or surf spots in the UK and surfing to the UK economy um, a few years ago worth something like 1.8 billion pounds annually to the UK economy, so fairly significant business um, or, or sector um, to protect and we've drilled that right down to numbers of surfers per spot, you know daily spend, all of these things. There's always a danger with it too if you work out a surf spot is worth X amount and a big businessman says well or person can come in and say well look I'll pay you twice that amount to exploit it, then you start getting into a, a, complicated, a complicated area. Um, so I think the financial economic justification is 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 one really good tool in the toolkit of conservation and environmentalism, but not
0: the only one for sure. Yeah, you got to speak to the heart, um, but you do brilliantly. You're you're a, um, a very eloquent speaker. Well, thank you, thank you. I think that there's all
2: sorts of things. I think for us, we've also got to, um, you know, we look at. Uh, some of the victories we've had and and how they they there's a spillover effect of what we've done to to keep the the momentum rolling of environmentalism so we've we've worked our focus issue at the moment is plastic pollution and the plastic pollution lobby uh, and debate in the UK is really really mature maybe more so than than here in terms of the the top levels of government are all talking about plastic pollution Um, all of the top newspapers in the UK are all talking about it on a daily basis and we've got a really big public shift towards plastic free as it were so there's a a really big positive narrative for it and we've been at the the very forefront of that Uh, we had a we worked on the, the plastic bag charge, a really seemingly small financial incentive that was introduced a couple of years ago in the UK. We campaigned with some other NGOs um, in a coalition to to, to bring that in. Um, five pence on a plastic bag when you check out at the supermarket. You know, you'd think that wouldn't make a big, a big difference to your weekly shop, but actually in two years it's reduced the circulation of plastic bags by about 10 billion. Um, and, uh, Do you know what that is on a percentage level? 85% reduction. Holy shit. So a really big reduction and one that business, first of all, campaigned against. And they would have campaigned much more strongly against a ban because then you're going head-to-head with them. You go, let's bring in a charge. We're not stopping you from doing it. Let's bring in a small charge. It's not even on you. It's on the consumer. And actually, you see this huge behavior change. But it was legislation that drove that. So it, it wasn't just you know a notional, here's five pence on a plastic bag from tomorrow. Is, is going to all of the supermarkets are going to do it? It was actually government legislation that came and say this is what the supermarkets now have to do. It's just been expanded, and off the back of that, we're looking at other things. So we're on the cusp now of a a, a bottle deposit, a plastic bottle deposit um, in the UK, UK wide. Scotland already, we've we're very police to say have already brought it in which is great or they're bringing it in so they're committed to it and a a bottle deposit system is is a proven way of trapping plastic in the economy rather than on our beaches and in our oceans so in the uk we use about 38 million plastic bottles every day only half of those are recycled Uh, the rest go into landfill go into our countryside go into our streets and go into our oceans so a really big plastic pollution problem And with a deposit return system as they have in Norway, as they have in many parts of Scandinavia, you collect almost 100% of your plastic bottles. You get much higher quality recyclate, which you can then make new plastic bottles out of instead of horrible downcycled stuff. You get Uh, carbon emission savings, because it's less carbon emissions from recycled plastics. You create domestic recycling uh, demand and infrastructure, and you create green jobs. So good all round whilst we decouple from single-use plastics. Because sure, in the long term, you can't recycle plastic forever. But in the short term, a really good step towards a more sustainable, plastic-free future. And we're on the cusp uh, of delivering that, too. We, we had 350,000 people sign our petition for that. I took it to the prime minister at Downing Street uh, last autumn. And we've got a really loud voice on it. I mean, one that, that means I maybe have to align with politicians I wouldn't always necessarily vote for but that's all part of the campaign and i want to see them do the right thing and you don't have to you don't have to vote for somebody to get them to do the right thing necessarily you can you can pressure them as a as a green environmental lobby to do the right thing and use the right tactics and they've come along on this great journey with us and you know it sometimes pains me to say that i see one of our environment ministers more than i see my wife pretty much but um but that's for the, the the greater good um and, um, and that's gonna be the next big victory for us, I think. I- I'm really proud of what we've been able to do there,
0: and that could stop literally billions of plastic bottles from going into our oceans. It's such an intelligent strategy to work on the legislative side of it. For a long time, when I was doing um, the Surfing for Change series, which was the documentary series that I did on YouTube where I would go to um, surf spots around the world and cover environmental issues, I was working on an individual change model. It was like, you know, put your money in a local bank. Don't buy plastic bottles or plastic bags. And I was speaking to people who are the kinds of people who show up at the Global Wave Conference. But I think that if we're going to turn the tide, it, we need way more than individual change. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, largely due to speaking to people like yourself. If we really want Systemic change. We need to incentivize the not so intelligent, not so thoughtful, not so reflective person to make the the right decision. And I think that something like a bag tax can do that.
2: I, I, I agree. We we've got to we've got to think outside of the people maybe that we're the echo uh, chamber uh, yeah the echo chamber we're all in an echo chamber And, and actually you know back in the 1990s surface against sewage would never have thought the right strategy would be to give every member a mop and go out and mop up the the sewage off off our beaches it wouldn't have been right it was all about putting the right legislation in place to force the water companies to do the right thing and we're we're in the same sort of situation with plastic being being the the big sort of global example at the moment you know plastic and climate change they're sort of you know similar things in a way they're they're these these huge emissions that are hitching a ride on the great liquids of life air and water polluting them and, and overburdening them and creating this huge issue for us and with plastic pollution the only difference is is instead of it being one clear piece of legislation that you put on water companies it's the emissions are coming from everywhere in our lives from our car tires from our from our plastic bottles from our hotel carpets from every single thing we use. And so it's actually putting the right systems change in place. How do we design this? How do we design plastics out of our our products? How do we create more durable plastics that don't shed fibers into our environment? So how do we incentivize or disincentivize business to make sure they do the right thing? So how do we, put you know elevate the taxes on on the on the packaging businesses will use so they just don't use it anymore so so say just 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 price it out of the market don't tax necessarily the consumer you know the plastic bag charge has worked well in the uk but if we were to put five pence on say plastic cutlery it might not work so well because people might be in a cafe think well i need to eat my lunch i can't do anything about it and i haven't got my knife and fork with me so I, i i need to buy that for five, ten cents, whatever. So so I think it's the direction taxes face, how we can really use those legislation and taxes to make sure that the system change change comes. With with systems change we can we can really decouple from plastics. And we would never have been able to pick up nine billion plastic bags out of our environment, but with systems change, maybe a couple of years of campaigning, but you, you actually achieve a much, much bigger impact. Sadly, in this world I think people are, particularly in the social media world, they're um, they're all too often fixated on the speed of social media delivery. They want to see an overnight success. They want a really simple message. It's going to be cured in a day. All our problems are solved. And a lot of it is sometimes overly geared, particularly with plastic pollution, to an end-of-pipe solution. And that's what big business wants. They want communities to pick it up they want it all to be on the beach at and it's us dirty communities that need to care more go and pick it up and it will all be good actually that's way too late we need to take that 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 solution right back upstream not even to the the sort of bag charges but right back up to design it out of products we need to just get rid of some of these materials
0: yeah straight away yeah if you look at an example like lead you know, lead in paint How absurd would it be to say, okay, well, you can have this lead paint, but we're going to charge you an extra 20 cents because it's horrible for the environment. We got lead paint off the shelves, so it wasn't even an option. And I think that the point that you may make about looking further upstream and designing it out of the system so those dangerous products aren't even an option on the shelves is where you really get to a closed loop uh closed loop system
2: yeah you know we could have it you know
0: the, the government could
2: legislate around things like bottled water they could They could put more punitive taxing on on the bottled water companies um, to actually produce that and put it in the consumer's hands. They could incentivize things. You know, here you've probably got a a more sort of a a climate that's more fit to having drinking fountains and things everywhere. But it's a big debate in the UK at the moment, the refill sort of movement, um, putting the infrastructure in place for people to be able to refill easily and effectively. Um, But... the big change really comes down to, to government legislation. Businesses aren't going to do it by themselves. As consumers, we're trapped in, in, in an economy too. So we, we are trapped by the choices we're given. And we're given limited choices. And it, we haven't got free will at all. Contrary to popular belief of, oh, we can choose to do as, exactly as we want. It's very, very difficult to avoid single-use plastics. It's very, very difficult to travel and to move around without having some sort of plastic footprint and that's because of the system that big business has designed for us that's that is a system that's designed for them to make maximum profits and to make it as easy as possible for themselves and they conflate that with oh well we're just giving the consumer what they want and that's not right. We don't want the plastic bottle necessarily. We want the product in it. Give it to us in a different way. No one wants to, apart from your your aficionado of collecting packaging, some people may have a museum to that. I'm sure they do. But apart from that person or those people, no one wants this, this waste. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just a transportation, a packaging thing to get it to us. And sure, there's a food waste issue too, but let's not let that distract us either we need to find new ways of product delivery to ensure that we can can have a a, a, a lower plastic impact on all environments not just the the ocean so plastic pollution is it is it's a really interesting one actually because it's really just a symptom of a really badly designed economy and lots of bad badly designed systems and it's not the the problem itself at all um The really great thing about it is everyone can see it. And so people are responding to it. And we, as surfers, saw it first. You know, we were there in the places that the big business and municipal sort of services and government couldn't clean up quick enough to hide the mess and so we saw it on the beach and we saw it um, in the ocean before the, the the big tv programs that started to bring it to public attention which was in the uk really recently the, the blue planet with sir david attenborough possibly one of the most trusted people in the whole of the uk in terms of giving a message you know told people to their living rooms plastic pollution is a a big thing but as 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 surfers we had seen it you know we'd seen it you know decades ago and so i think it was it's an interesting thing that this hemorrhaging of our our systems this this inability and you know we see it sort of badly in the uk and developed countries but it's really fucking bad in developing countries this inability to create to contain and process the mess that we're making every single day and so it's it's sort of a positive thing because really the fact that people can see it unlike carbon which is this thing the climate change thing people still are struggling with believing it everywhere. Which is
0: happening on a different time scale than something like plastic pollution when we first started chatting about nature and how it can be this reflection of the the temporal nature of life. Like we have a very difficult time seeing something that's so seemingly slow moving. Whereas if uh, a bear jumped out behind you right now, you would have this big fight, flight, or freeze uh, response because you're designed to but we it's interesting again you know
2: talking about bears made me think back to the being in the woods up in Big Sur with these amazing trees a thousand years old The same tree that I hugged yesterday will be there long after I'm gone. Maybe my son Darwin will take his kids back and they'll hug the same tree just by chance. And it will only be slightly different in the big scheme of things. But the you know, looking we looked at the rings of one of the trees and they you know they date the the droughts and the fires and you see all of the different things that the scientists have have worked out. And you know, people talk about this era, the Anthropocene and the 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 the, the sort of laying down of of the different, you know, elements. So you've got the carbon being laid down in, in a different abundance in the rings of trees, but you've also got this layer of plastic. And you know, as we wean ourselves off it, we're never going to get it all out of the oceans. We can't go and fish around and get it all out. It will get crushed up, it will get degraded, and it will leave a fine layer of plastic on the seabed or wherever else that will get integrated and covered up. And in centuries' time, if humankind continues to exist, they will dig it up and go, What the fuck were they doing? This sort of indestructible, potentially toxic, who knows? We, we we don't know I think the real impacts of plastics, but being derived from oil and having all of the different gender bending chemicals in it, the you know, the phthalates and things like that. Endocrine disruptors, yeah. yeah. It can't be overall a positive thing to have our food wrapped in it and everything we do sort of touching it. So um so it will be an interesting, you know, geological record. Of this time. Um, Maybe one that we can keep to one small ring for for humankind, but one that is definitely going to be there and one that we can hopefully build on without a ring of plastic.
0: Yeah, it's going to be part of our unintended legacy. A lot of us walk around thinking about legacy. How are we going to be remembered? But a lot of what we do will be part of an unintended legacy. Um, I think about people who um have relatives that pass away and then they are like i just had a friend who who had a a relative that passed away and they are now left with a house full of stuff and that is part of this person's legacy who died and it's unintended all the stuff that we leave behind everything that we use um we will be remembered for whether we like it or not yeah, it's funny that well, it, that, I mean, totally
2: tangential, but it made me think of my grandma Doreen, um, and one of the things that I struggle, I mean, she died, died a, a good while ago now. One of the things that I find really hard to hold on to, because there were no recordings, is is the voice of of people from the past. That you can, it's really hard. I struggle to hold on to her voice, reading me bedtime stories and stuff. It's it, it's funny that, but anyway, I, I I digress. But yeah, the the the, the legacy. I think for me part of the legacy is trying for anyone trying to do the sort of best you can and we're all we're all going to fuck up a bit or a lot or you know whatever bandwidth of of fucking up we have but it is trying and feeling that you're pushing towards something that you want to see i had a great chat with an author that i really really love a guy called tim winton an environmentalist um um uh, a author from australia um you, he did a lot of work around the the protecting the ningaloo reef in in australia you should definitely check out his books if you haven't read. Um, what was his uh, name? Uh, Tim Winton. Okay, um, he's written a few great books. Some of my favourite um, books, um, and a, a surfer as well. And he writes about surfing really well, which isn't always the case in in surf surf books. Um, but he talked about um, when I chatted to him about, you know, keeping keeping positive and how how do you keep positive and just this this notion of moving. You don't never know how close to the tipping point you are of, of positivity and. You may never see the results you want in your lifetime, but you need to have the courage to try and move the dial closer to that tipping point. And I think that's that's right. Who who knows whether what we're doing is making an overall big difference or not? But fuck, you've got to keep keep on trying <laughs> because what else are you what else are you going to do? And I think that's that's really important. And it's great to be surrounded in the echo chamber by people who who are who are doing that and actually seeing people responding more and more who who definitely aren't in the echo chamber people who I would never normally have a conversation with coming on board um thinking about plastic pollution thinking about marine protected areas thinking about water quality in a in a bigger way that's pleasing and
0: I think I think we're making a difference do you think much about your own legacy
2: um i I do I'd like to think that I would have I mean we all have a legacy of of whatever whatever just anything you do leaves a its thumbprint um on on the world in some way um I probably would think about it in the context of of positivity and and inspiring people and that I believe if there is a a second sort of life in some ways that's the energy the ripples that you put out that transmit around the people close to you and then around the world and how they create that positivity and other people to, to do good things and be good to other people and, and live a, you know, hopefully a sustainable and good, good life and I see SAS as something that's not just about the planet but it's about people and planet and that intersect of people and planet Uh, I love I love people I love meeting people I love talking to people I love inspiring people and I try through SAS to give people opportunities to participate and try and make a difference so those 50,000 volunteers training our regional chapters bringing people along to great things with us in parliament I hope that that is part of the legacy and it's like throwing that stone into the pond and it rippling out. And maybe one of those people will go on and be one of the greatest people on earth because of that that interaction. And so I sort of see legacy as that that sort of personal fingerprint of of, of trying to help, really. In, in terms of sort of organizationally or anything else, you know, maybe it would be... Too self-aggrandizing, or too egotistical, to think about it as a as an outright victory, or or, or, or or impact with SAS. You know, that's that's a good thing. But the more people we can inspire, the more chance there is that one of those people will fly to the moon of environmentalism and create the truly brilliant future that we wanna see.
0: And that, that would be legacy for me, to somebody who's much better than me. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a healthy way to look at it because if you try and put too much of a container on your impact, it's never gonna be accurate. Uh, because as you said, you have no idea who is listening to this right now, who it might shift something in their mind and then they go off to do something great. And it doesn't really matter. Really, like at the end of the day, like we're all here doing our best, trying to make the campsite a little bit nicer than we found it. And there is a kind of um, fractal equation that is taking place, and it's not healthy to focus too much on it. I like one issue that I had um, when I was doing Surfing for Change because Save the Waves was my fiscal sponsor and I was getting grants to make these films was that I was forced to. Uh, document measurable impact from the films that I would make and it I had a really hard time doing it because putting a container around something that is ultimately an emotional experience for people yeah there's a certain level of of information that's being transferred through a film that I make but ultimately it's an emotional experience and I don't know how that's gonna impact other people and it didn't really matter to me all that much but i i feel like that i get the reason why nonprofits need to show measurable impact but i think that it it is an incomplete version of the impact that that you guys are having
2: yeah i think there's lots of sort of proxy proxy uh indicators of, of of success you know whether it's social media reach or or, or you know i mean particularly social media reach and and interactions whatever they may mean or not um, the 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 real kpi the real measure of success is is, is na- nature protected is it's the sort of outright sort of victories i suppose but even those are a subject to to change and and u-turns depending on on um, prime ministers and presidents and, and, and different systems and business interests and societal needs as they, they change. And all of those things work in, in, in symbiosis and you, you never know, you never know how long stuff is, is protected for. So, um, so I think, I think the positivity is, is, is something that, that can hopefully breed a, a better society all around from a people and planet point of view. How do you deal with burnout? with difficulty Um, I've got I've sort of got one natural gear really which is high highly sort of motivated and charged with with what I'm doing and it can be when I when I when I crash I can crash in a a big way Um, I think dealing with burnout is one of the things I've realized because I've had a couple of years of of really really intense pressure of building the organization and building the finance around that to to, um, to To do the right thing, and sometimes within that, making really complicated decisions, turning down hundreds of thousands of dollars because I don't want to be associated with a certain brand or industry when I need hundreds of thousands of dollars to do what I need to do is is really challenging. Um, but for me one of the things and here's been great this last 10 days in california has been great not only being around some of the most inspirational allies colleagues and friends that i've got in the world people that i've over the past decade formed really tight bonds with but also being connected with nature surfing some of the best ways i've surfed in a long time i can't i won't name the spot even though it's very well known but having great fun with just a handful of my friends in the lineup seeing dolphins pop up sea lions and seals around us Um, of course slightly wary at the back of the mind of sharks with teeth which we don't have in in the UK but um, being really connected with nature and actually realizing that you've got to be you and do what makes you tick to be the best professional you can be too you can't just work all of the time you can't be hell for leather actually part of being brilliant at work and maybe I'm that's bit bit arrogant to say but being delivering the best impact is spending time doing what i want to do too not just working all the time
0: yeah that's not what life's about and your work's not going to be any good if that's all you're doing and realizing you've got to enjoy the ride
2: um sorry for the the sort of metaphor again but you've got to enjoy that ride because somebody's going to come along after you're long gone and do your job basically so you can't worry about Having to work harder and harder you've got to have fun whilst you're doing it and not just be at the you know at the computer the whole time um, and again that links right back to the authenticity thing this is what makes us a connection with the beach actually enjoying it um, and that that's what makes us different the the enviro surf community that's what has connected us all that's what makes us different um, and that's that's a really valuable thing to keep so keep 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 hold of
0: that um yeah. And I, I agree. I For a long time, I always felt like I was going to get to a place where I was happy or successful or satisfied. And I think it was probably right around when I was 25, 26. A lot of it actually had to do with um, using psilocybin mushrooms for the first time. when I, And I was able to relax around a lot of those notions of legacy and getting there and being happy at some point and just understanding like dude, this is all gonna be over in a flash, so enjoy the ride and don't stress out too much, otherwise it just takes up mental energy that isn't helpful uh, yeah uh,
2: absolutely and some of you know the the people who have inspired me and as you know my son's called Darwin and Charles Darwin is. You know, a, a, an inspiration to me and my wife, Sarah. Um, you know, and some of these people, Charles Darwin included, who've come up with, you know, great theories, ideas, science, you know, find those ideas, not when they're focused on finding those ideas. Charles Darwin is well documented to have found his ideas walking down the grove of trees that he had planted outside his, his home and his constitutional walk every day would be where suddenly everything slots into place. We can find them when we're surfing. When I swim in the pool or the sea and you get into that sort of almost trance-like state, almost, you know, like yoga, calm the mind you start to feel less stressed about some of those big challenges you thought were really weighing you down and were problematic and the solutions just popped you and go why am I even worried about it some of the big things you've been wrestling with suddenly make a lot more sense and you go right I, I know exactly what I need to do those things come when we're sort of disconnected from from having to think about it too hard and they just fall in in a sort of lucid way into your mind and that that for me is keeping keeping fresh and not being burnt out so having the right balance and it's hard because we can we're like pendulums you know that there, there's that equilibrium where everyone says you should sort of be, be on that that sort of that that point but actually we're like pendulums swinging from one side to the other try not let, to let it swing too wildly in either direction particularly in maybe the direction of the little devil on the shoulder telling you to you know do things that you you shouldn't do or or break too many you know societal norms you know that's that's um that that's the important thing to do, so try and keep yourself sort of sort of balanced, but with some some high peaks and sometimes low troughs can really help. I think the low troughs in my life certainly have helped help me focus today on what i I do
0: and deliver how I deliver today. I think it's really important to recognize why we're feeling shitty, and a lot of times the fact that it, that is a it's a message that something needs to change, and we live in a world where where we're not supposed to feel sad anymore for one reason or another. We're always supposed to be chasing happiness, which uh, is really unhealthy. I think that we should feel low lows, and uh, that pendulum, as you were saying, like it's it's important to recognize the ebbs and flows, um, and and use that energy positively. I I do uh, I just signed up for an improv class recently and I yesterday we were in a class where you do an external monologue with a partner and then there are two people behind you who are your internal voices so nice. it's like oh hey i'm i'm here with hugo and then the voice behind me would be like he's so smart. Oh my gosh, I just can't. And then like your internal voice would be like, this fuck with Why am I doing this podcast with him? But it is such a good example of how we have our, our external selves. And then there's also that, that internal mind that's happening as well, which is the pendulum swinging between I- I- inside and how we're being perceived outside. Yeah. And I think, um, I think we're also all, um,
2: we're all sort of on the spectrum too, you know, in, in the way we wrestle and cope with with life. You know, there's a there's a band that, you know, which were, you know, we've got, you know, we've got. Darwin's got friends with autism and, and, and you know, there's people who are, you know, who may have more challenges, but we all have challenges and highs and lows of our emotion and ways we need to deal with those, you know, and, 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 and sort of cycles we get trapped in. And when you're trapped in a cycle thinking, you know, if I do, if I respond how I've always responded, I'll get what I always get. And if I know the cycle leads to this, or if I do that, I'm going to end up in a sort of worse place. How do you break that cycle? How do you actually consciously sort of decouple from it and go, right, okay okay, this isn't good. I know where this goes. I know I'm with this wrong crowd and I know they might lead me down this path. Actually, where do I intervene? And learning to take more control of that is, is really important and recognize the different things that will lead you down sort of the, I suppose, positive pathways to, to sort of get to whichever part of the journey you're meant to get to. Because I think you're right. We always have this thing and I think it's maybe dictated a bit by the economy we live in of like, there's always something else. There's always the bigger car, the bigger salary, the more, the more, the more. It's always a journey. It's never, we're never sold anything, which is just be content. Just be content. This is good. That's where you are. Be in the now. Be good to the people around you. That's great. Set be up grateful. a ha- set up a hammock and crack a beer. Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's um something we've all got to wrestle with, haven't we? And um yeah, certainly. I, I would say, you know, having had times, you know, in my life too, where where I've where I've struggled and I've you know I've you know I've got lots of people around me in my life who've who've had issues with you know mental health and i've seen therapists and done all of that and actually we're all wrestling with it and i've you know i've gone through darker phases and i've got to like an like amazingly the best place in in my life you know running a thing that i care passionately about around people that i i love you know it's not just that i like the people i work around i love the people i work around and i care for them like a family great son great opportunities and keep working hard there's going to be down moments but there's
0: definitely up moments that come love it man hi i so enjoyed this conversation where can people get in touch with you and get involved with surfers against sewage Well, anyone from around the world can get in touch. Um, They can visit our website,
2: sas.org.uk. They can send me an email to hugo at sas.org.uk, no problem. And um, they can run a beach clean. They can start a plastic-free community with us. Um, They can get involved in water qualities, MPAs, all sorts of things, with us or one of our partners around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carl.
0: That's our show, everybody. I'm going to play you out with a song called Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Suede. And I will link to their band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf slash podcast. I will also link to Hugo's TED Talk on my website. Um, that's also where you can donate. Um, and once again, do not feel pressured to donate to this podcast. If you don't have the cash, just... Um, Take a minute and give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Keep listening. Keep enjoying the positive vibrations. And I hope you enjoy this song called Hooked on a Feeling. See you soon.
1: All the good luck.